You are listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. For more information about our church, please visit www.hopechurchipswich.net. It's great to be here. Thank you. Over the past few weeks, we've been hearing about the, uh, the letter of Paul, from Paul to the church in Philippi, Philippians. And as we've heard, Philippi was a Roman colony. It was pagan. It was prosperous. It was actually founded on gold mines and settled by Roman soldiers. So as soon as they found that that wealth, they thought, let's get in there. And so retired Roman soldiers moved in, and Italian immigrants came over to Asia and settled the place. Um, And some some people compare Philippi to actually like New York. You know, it was founded on immigration, it was prosperous, it was worldly, it was an ambitious place, it was settled by tough, successful people. And uh, as Tom preached about last week, so helpfully preached about last week, at the end of chapter 1, Paul exhorts the Philippians, in the context of that, to live life in a manner worthy of the good news of Jesus Christ. There was clearly opposition, and uh, Paul exhorts the Philippian church not to be frightened of their opponents, not to be um, overawed by what they see around them, but to live unified lives, standing firm, in one mind, in one spirit. And last week, Tom encouraged us. You remember, he talked about the rugby scrum. Um, I know it's close to his heart. And, uh, <laughs> and, you know, just how we should work together and be encouraging each other, supporting each other, and, you know, not, not sitting on the edges, but getting involved and getting stuck in. And that's the safest place to be. So today, I want to talk about chapter two. I want to start in chapter two. I'm going to talk about our new lives in Christ Jesus, how in our new lives our ambitions have been changed. I'm going to look at Jesus' example and what those new lives actually mean in reality. And uh, then I want to focus on Jesus the champion. So if, let's turn to chapter 2 of Philippians, and uh, we're going to look at verses 1 to 11. If you've got a Bible, Philippians is in between Colossians and Ephesians, or Ephesians and Colossians, whatever way you're starting, from the back or the front. And uh, it's... Uh, It's kind of in the middle of the New Testament. If you haven't got a Bible, just look over the shoulder of someone else. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he didn't account quality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I could just sit down, couldn't I? That's amazing, isn't it, that passage, but I won't, don't worry. Now, you're probably all far too sensible, aren't you? Um, but on occasion, Corey and I have been known to indulge in watching The Apprentice. Okay. 
Now, I don't know if anyone here watches The Apprentice. Hands up if you do. Anyone? Yeah, a few people. Yeah, good. Well, well done. Now, what always amazes... Yeah, what are you doing with your lives? Come on. <laughs> what always amazes me about The Apprentice is the, is the raw ambition and the, the drive that these contestants seem to have, don't they? They're absolutely crazy. And it leads to some of the most outrageous quotes that you'll ever hear. So here's, here's a few of them. Out of every ten people I walk past on the street, I think I'm better looking than nine of them. <laughs> okay. I'm sure there's some people here that might think that. <laughs> In business, I'm like a stealth bomber that flies under the radar and smashes the opposition before they even realize I'm here. And I think this is the best one. I regret not becoming a scientist so that I could clone myself and be more successful in half the time. <laughs> now, just let that sink in, right? <laughs> it's weird. Now, of course, this is, this is a highly edited, isn't it, and staged um, TV entertainment. But all jokes aside, what I do think The Apprentice does is, is give us a, a nice glimpse, an extreme version, if you like, of what this world can be like. It's an ambitious world, isn't it? It's driven, it's self-serving, it's competitive, a dog-eat-dog -dog world. And we live, don't we, in an increasing individualistic society, which advocates live for yourself. Be ambitious for yourself, you know, for your own comfort. As long as children and animals don't get hurt, you know, do whatever you want. Be ambitious, have some drive about you, come on. We live in a society that, that basically takes God out of the equation. And so that the result of that is a culture that believes you've got to be strong. You've got to have your own strength to survive. You've got to do well. If you fail, it's probably your fault. You know, it's a, probably a weakness in you. You know, you weren't ambitious enough or you didn't do well enough. Come on. You know, we live in a society that's obsessed by money, by possessions, the latest thing. People are ambitious for the best job, the best education, the nicest house, the latest number plate. People become ambitious for their kids, don't they? For themselves, for their retirement, for their pension fund. People get, in, get very protective about these things. I work in HR, I've seen it, believe me. When people's pension funds are threatened, my word, people get very uppity. But what about if you're not the strongest? What about if you're not the best, the most successful? What about if you're not like that contestant in The Apprentice and you're not the good-looking one? In this barrage, this constant pressure of what success and ambition is meant to look like, no wonder people struggle. And you might be surprised to hear, or you may not, that actually suicide rates in this country are, are up, particularly in men my age, which is slightly worrying. <laughs> In a recent report, it's been revealed that one in five 15-year-olds self-harm. The, the report author said, parents are busy and stressed, and children's lives are becoming pressurized as a result. They know they need better grades to get to university, but there's no guarantee of a job at the end of it all. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with ambition and living motivated, successful lives, is there? You know, where would we be without driven people? Where would we be? Where, we wouldn't be enjoying the technology that we use every day. We wouldn't be enjoying the healthcare system that we have every day if there wasn't driven people. 
we wouldn't be enjoying the church, the freedom, the social reform you know, that we, we enjoy in this nation if there wasn't driven and, and ambitious people. The church wouldn't be advanced without ambitious people. But we all know too well that the world's ambition is often selfish, isn't it? It's often not about, about God. It's about self-loving. It's, it's conceited. It's about self-glorification. And it tears lives apart. In its extreme form, we see the wars around us happening everywhere. We see the gap between rich and poor widening. I'm not making a political statement. It just is happening, isn't it? It's obvious. We see families that are broken, that are quarrelling. And often, selfishness is at the heart of those quarrels. And sadly, un ungodly ambition, selfish at attitudes can happen in the church, can't they? And um, probably a lot of us could recount tales, I certainly can, where ambition and selfishness has got into the church and it's caused disunity and ruined churches. So we come to this passage, and in stark contrast, Paul is presenting here something that is radical, that is utterly countercultural to what we see out in the world, to what I've just been describing. In these first verses, we see a new way of living. We see what we have become of who we are in Christ and of where we now belong in Christ. As Christians, we have new hearts, we have new sensitivities, we have new minds. And last week, we heard that the church is, a, is an expression of the love, the togetherness, the selflessness, the unity that exists in God in the Trinity. But Paul here now is bringing it down to the individual level. He's talking to us personally here as individuals. In all we do, remember, we are now different from this world. If we have any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from his love, as we've got the Spirit of God dwelling in us, let's work together. Let's love each other. Let's be of one mind, one purpose. Let's demonstrate a selflessness to each other. Why? Because our core has been changed. As Christians, the focus has been taken off ourselves and shifted to Jesus. Let's be honest, we've got to live in the real world. We can't all walk around like monks. I remember the, uh, the, um, holy, the Search for the Holy Grail, the, the Monty Python movie. The monks walking around, hitting their heads with Bibles or whatever. We're not meant to do that. We're meant to live in the real world. We've got to earn money. Let's earn lots of money so we can pay for a new building. We've got to get the best grades. Let's go for it. Let's do well. Let's get the best jobs. Let's look after ourselves and our well-being. That's the buzzword, isn't it? Let's look after what we're, you know, our, our families. But in the pursuit of our goals, in the pursuit of our ambitions and desires, our motiva motivation is now different because we are now wonderfully part of God's ambition for this world. As individuals and corporately as a church, we are called to enjoy him. We're called to build his church. And we're called to tell the world about this good news. So, this is why Paul is exhorting the Philippians. Come on, remember we're different now. This new heart, this change of ambition and focus should show the world a better way of living. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others 
more significant than yourself. Let each of you not look to your own interests, your own ambitions. If you have ambitions, look to the interests of others while you're pursuing those ambitions. And here's the key verse. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This new way of living is ours. It's ours. It's ours in Christ Jesus. It requires effort. It will require work. And we'll be talking about that in a second. But in Jesus, we have the perfect example of someone who laid aside his personal glory, his personal comforts in heaven, and came to earth. And he was motivated out of love. And he made his ambition us, you and I. And Jesus has done it. Jesus is the perfect example of how we can live these lives that are motivated by different things. Now, there's a, a preacher which was mentioned a few weeks ago, Charles Spurgeon, who lived 100 or so years ago. And he led churches of 10,000, 5,000. He saw thousands of people saved. And uh, he, quote, he said this about Jesus, about knowing Jesus. He said, in Jesus, you will find rest unto your souls. There never was like his among the choices of princes. He is always to be found in the thickest part of the battle. If he asks us to carry a burden, he carries it as well. If there is anything that is gracious, kind, tender, and superabundant in love, you will always find it in Jesus. These 40 years... And more, I have served him, and I have had nothing but love from him. Jesus, I love that quote, because what it says is, is that when we are caught up in Jesus' ambition for this world, when we are caught up in serving him, that he doesn't leave us alone. He's in the thickest of the battle with us. He, 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 he's the best leader, because he's not only in the thickest of the battle, he has led by example at the beginning. He humbled himself. He came down to earth. He showed us what it means to live these godly lives. So what was Jesus' example? And what I want to do now is just look at some examples of Jesus and how he came and showed us um, an ex you know, the example of living godly lives. He gave us everything. Colossians 2 verse 9 says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus is God. Jesus wasn't God's, God's servant or, or second in command. I think sometimes we have an image, don't we, in the church of he's like a demigod. He was, you know, sort of doing God's bidding. But Jesus is God. As part of the Trinity, he is God. He was equal to God. His godness is inherent in him. John 1 verse 3 says that all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus created the world. Colossians 1 verse 17 says that, that he, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus is eternal. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He sustains the world. And I could go on. And yet Jesus emptied himself. He humbled himself. He became one of us, fully human. He was obedient even to death on the cross. Now remember, this was a Roman colony. When Paul wrote those words, the, the full force of that would not have been lost on the Philippians. Crucifixion was a, was a punishment that was, um, that was saved for um, slaves and insurrectionists. It was the Roman way of humbling people and of stamping down their authority, of saying, look, you've gone too far, and this is what happens if you go too far. 
What happened to Jesus on the cross is the ultimate contradiction to human wisdom and power, that God would appear as a human and be crucified as a state criminal by a lesser authority. Jesus' humiliation was complete. Even his, even his clothes were torn up, weren't they? He was completely humiliated. What Jesus did and what Paul was teaching is in complete contradiction to the values of the world. And Jesus, who was God, brought himself into death because to be a human is to die and to rescue us from the death that we deserve as punishment for our, our sins. As Paul puts it in Romans 5, verse 7 to 8, it's a difficult thing for someone to die for a righteous person. It might be, it might be that someone might even dare to die for a good person. But God has shown us how much he loves us. It was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. Now, I was thinking about this and thinking about Jesus' example and thinking, how does this apply to us as Christians in the, in the, in the modern world, in, in the church? And the thing that came into my mind was just this phrase, don't give up. And it's hard, isn't it, sometimes, persevering as a Christian in the world. And yesterday, we had a classic example, bringing up children. We've got three kids, and uh, we want to bring up our children to love God, to do the right thing. And we had a difficult day yesterday with, my, with one of my kids. And it, on d days like that, you just think, God, what is this all about? What am I doing? Where is this all going? And the lie is often, isn't it? You know, why are you making life difficult for yourself? Why are, you, why, are you why are you persevering down this path when it's so difficult, it's so hard? But our ambitions and our goals are different now. As we strive for godliness, it requires effort. We will be attacked. Lies will come. We will feel out of our depth at times. But take comfort in the fact that Jesus gave up everything for us. He loved us. And he still loves us. And in, his, in him, we find forgiveness, we find help, we find comfort, we find guidance. And this calling, this life is worth it. What this world offers is temporary, but what Jesus offers is eternal. One of my favorite stories is of uh, a missionary called Jim Elliott, who was a missionary who, uh, who went to Ecuador and went to tell the Orca Indians about Jesus. He spent months in preparation. He uh, took ages to get ready. He flew a plane onto a beach um, in Ecuador. And uh, he arrived. And as he arrived, he got out of the plane. And the Indians speared him to death. And uh, the story goes on that his wife um, went back and evangelized and spoke to them again, and they became Christians. But they looked at his diaries, and before he went on that fateful mission, he wrote this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And friends, it's so important that we don't give up. Remember what Jesus gave for us, everything for us, so that we could gain life in him. Secondly, Jesus made a choice to his divinity, Jesus added humanity. For the first time, he was subject to such things as hunger, thirst, pain, disease, temptation. 
Jesus knew the consequences of his choice, what it would mean to be human. After all, he did create us. He, he knows us. He knows what we're all about. Isaiah describes Jesus as this. He says, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. That's what Jesus became for us. He made a choice to become that for us. Jesus, motivated out of love, made a choice to become human for you and I. Living for Jesus requires a choice, a decision. It requires a choice at the beginning, doesn't it, when we have to make that step. But it also requires a daily choice in what we say, in how we act, in the decisions that we make. But because Jesus made a choice to humble himself and become human, as Hebrews 4, 4 verse 15 says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize, and some versions say empathize, with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted and, and yet was without sin. In Jesus we have the perfect example who made the right daily choices, who never sinned. He humbled himself, he, 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 he loved, he blessed, he helped people. But he never sinned. He never did it out of selfish ambition. But we also have someone who empathizes and understands us in our weakness when we have to make these choices, when we're tempted to do something different, when we're tempted, when we struggle with what we're, what, what we're, what we're called to. Jesus, the third thing is that Jesus' power and glory was veiled. Although there were glimpses of it at certain times, in his life, the full glory of Jesus was hidden from humanity during his time on earth. I love the story in, in, in the account of Jesus' arrest in, in John, where um, they all turned up at the Garden of Gethsemane and they said, you know, where's Jesus? Where is this Jesus of Nazareth? And Jesus said, I am he. And as he said that, they drew back and fell to the ground. They experienced a glimpse of his glory. But it stopped there, didn't it? He could have gone on. He could have destroyed them all and thought, stuff it, I'm not doing this. But no, he, said, he, he stopped it there. Jesus allowed them to arrest him. Now, we've got three kids. And do you remember, if, for those who have children, for those who have ever looked after children, do you, do you remember the time or do you know what it feels like to hold a newborn baby? The floppiness in the head. The, the, the fragileness, they're delicate. You know, you feel as if you can make one false move and they could get seriously hurt. And that must have been what it was like for Jesus when he was on earth, holding the people he came into contact with, with such tenderness, with such care and love. At any time, he could have destroyed them. The devil knew this, which is why the devil tempted him to prove himself. Come on, prove yourself. But he didn't. Jesus held back his power. He veiled his glory for our sakes so that he could be the sacrifice for our sins. I think we've all met people in life, haven't we, who like to throw their weight around. You know, we've met people who like to lord it over, who, who, are, who, who ambitions take, the hold, take hold of them. But Jesus' example was very different. And how often are we tempted to push ourselves forward, to show people what we're really made of? I'm going to... That's it. You know, I'm going to show them what I'm really made of now. And there's nothing wrong with drive and ambition. 
But my question to us all today is, what's the motive behind it? Are we tender with people like Jesus is tender with us? Are we gracious towards people like Jesus is gracious to us? Are we pleased, comfortable when others do well, when someone else takes the limelight? We are God's precious children. We've heard this morning, haven't we, about how much we are loved, dearly loved. And in this knowledge alone, we do not need to selfishly push ourselves forward, prove ourselves. We can rest in his love, in his plans for our lives. Colossians 3 verse 12 says, which Paul wrote, put on them as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Paul starts here by saying, we're loved by God, so let's be humble, let's be patient, let's be kind. That was Jesus' example. Jesus chose the life of a servant. It's, read the pages, read the Bible, read, see what he did. He healed people, he cooked for people, he cooked fish. Jesus provided for people. Jesus worked for people. Jesus spent time with the unloved, the misfits, the outcasts. Jesus encouraged people. Jesus washed people. His whole life was an act of service, wasn't it? Is that our ambition as well? When we're pursuing our job, our studies, which is good, in it is our ambition to be, ser- to be servants. To God, Jesus said, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus came to do the will of the Father. He served God as well. In his ambitions, he was always looking to serve God. In the world, as you progress, as you gain success, as you gain position, I don't know if you've noticed, if you've ever been in, worked in an office, when people get promotion, sometimes it goes to their heads, doesn't it? <laughs> you tend to do less. You have to make tea for them. <laughs> you get others to serve you. They start to get, they get a PA. They get a budget. People get more, don't they? As you do well, you get more. But Jesus smashed that apart, which is one of the reasons the religious rulers of his day absolutely hated him. <laughs> to them, success was to gain power. To, him, to them, success was knowledge, a higher spiritual, intellectual plane, to lord it over everyone, which is what they did. And they gasped in utter horror when Jesus went to dinner with a tax collector. When Jesus allowed a prostitute to wash his feet. Even his disciples struggled when he washed their feet. Peter was like, come on, Jesus, what are you doing? But Jesus was modeling another way, wasn't he? A way of service. A different way of leading. A different way of living. A different way of reaching this world. Jesus' reply to the disciples when they questioned him, what are you doing, was, I, your Lord and teacher, have just washed your feet. You then should wash another's feet. I have set an example for you so that you will do just what I have done for you. And the question that I ask us all in this room this morning, and myself included, is are our, li- are our lives an act of service to us or to God and to others? Jesus obeyed and submitted to the Father as well. As we've seen, Jesus is God. He chose to come to earth. He chose to submit and to obey the will of the Father. Jesus had to consciously and continuously rely on the Father instead of his own divine attributes. He could do anything. He's God. But he deliberately chose to rely on the Father. 
There is something in us humans, I think, and I would say, as a, a British person, particularly in the British, that find it so hard, don't we, to submit and obey sometimes. But it's a godly principle demonstrated by Jesus that things work better when we're under authority, in an attitude of submission, being obedient to God's ordained authority. In a culture that values independence, esteems the rebel, thinks of its own interests above, the, it's, it's above others, we're called to obey the authorities, to submit to church leaders. Let our ambition be to be the best employees, the best citizens, the best marriage partners, the best church members, to treat each other in the church as precious family, looking to the interests of others over our own. Ultimately, obedience to God is a trust issue, isn't it? Do we trust God enough to submit and obey to his way of doing things? Five years ago, some friends of ours moved to Madrid with their three young kids um, to plant a church. They didn't know Spanish, they didn't know the culture, they had no language, um, but they felt God say move, so they did. And uh, we went to visit them. And the first time we visited them, Kevin, the chap who, um, in question, he described to us what it had been like. This is what he said. He said, in daily life, he had had to die to himself learning Spanish. It was embarrassing. <laughs> how they had to give up a comfortable life in Salisbury. How, they had to, how hard it was for the kids. The kids were called thick at school because they couldn't speak the language. They had been ripped off by people because they couldn't understand the language. How they had, had an elderly father back in England who they had to leave behind. How um, they had come from leading a growing church to leading a group of 10 people in a front room. How he didn't expect to see the full fruit of what he was doing in his lifetime. How the average Catholic Spaniard considered anything other than the established church as a cult. Friends, whether we are planting churches in Madrid or going to the office, going to uni, or at home looking after the kids. This is what the Christian life is about. It's about being prepared to die to our own desires and ambitions, because we are called to a higher ambition now, to serve, consider others better than ourselves, to trust and obey God. We might be ridiculed, disdained, sidelined, we might be un the unpopular one in the office, but we're called to something higher. We're caught up in God's mission to save this world. And this is a glorious calling. Why? Because as we heard in the worship, Jesus has resurrected. And Jesus not only has resurrected, he has ascended. And this is what Paul ends this passage on. Ascension Day, for those who don't know, is a Christian term for the day when God took Jesus to heaven and here, Paul describes what this meant for Jesus. The Bible says that Jesus is now seated at the right hand of God, the Father, in all authority, in all power, and sin and death have, been, have become subject to that authority. And how did he get there? Well, he was raised up by God. God physically and spiritually lifted Jesus to a place of authority over all the earth. God expressed his value judgment on Jesus and lifted and ascended Jesus. God did it. It was an act of God. A deliberate, divine action in response to the sort of person Jesus is. Jesus' ascension shows us a godly principle here this morning. As God raised Jesus up because he was obedient. 
So as Christians, we can be assured that if we humble ourselves, if we make God and his service our ambition and make, the decision, make decisions around God's, then he will lift us up. He will vindicate you. He will provide for you. He will help you. He will do amazing things in your life. James 4 verse 6 says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. In verse 10 it says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Jesus' ascension, though, is, not just, is more than just a, a godly principle. It's also um, it, the ascension of Jesus changes everything. It changes everything for us and the world because Jesus has won the victory over sin, death, the devil. He is the champion overall. Now, this summer, we've got the Euros, we've got the Olympics, we've got the Vote for Europe, we've got the Eurovision Song Contest. It's all going on. And no doubt, we will be bombarded, won't we, with champions, people who have succeeded, people who have conquered, people who have done well, who have, who have and ambitions have taken them to a higher place. And there's nothing wrong with any of that, is there? It's, it's all fun most of the time. But these victories are hollow victories compared to the victory of our champion, the Lord Jesus. Paul describes here a daily uh, Sorry, Paul describes here a day when Jesus will return. He'll return to wrap up this present age. No one knows when it will be, but when he returns, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. As Mark Driscoll, a uh, uh, church leader and writer, puts it, on this day, uh, he describes what it will look like. Perhaps my favorite picture and that of my young son's of the glorious exaltation of our great God Jesus Christ is what we like to refer to as ultimate fighter Jesus. Jesus rides into town on a white horse with his steely eyes blazing red like fire and a tattoo down his leg that says, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is wearing white like a gunslinger from an old western, carrying a sword, looking for some bad guys as the blood of already fallen enemies drips to the ground below. Simply, Jesus was and is, and forever will be, fully God. He is not someone anyone would want to mess with. Let's be encouraged this morning. Living the Christian life is not easy. It's not easy um, dying to our ambitions. It's not easy, is it? We can easily get discouraged. We can easily get sidelined. But in Jesus, our champion, this new way of living is ours in him. We are new creations. We have new minds. In Jesus, we can live different lives. We have, in Jesus, our champion, we have an advocate, someone who is championing our cause in heaven. Jesus is ambitious for us. The Bible says Jesus is interceding for us at the right hand of God. He's reminding God of, a, of our cause, a constant reminding that he has taken our punishment and he is our righteousness. In Jesus, our champion, we're raised to a higher calling, a higher ambition. We're called for good works that God has prepared for us to do. We don't have to keep up with the Joneses anymore. Because we're free from that. We're free from the world's ambitions and desires. Earthly reward has been put in its place when we see the reward that, that is in store for us in heaven. Our ambition is now to hear that Jesus, when Jesus returns, as we've seen, well done, good and faithful servant. Now when Jesus returns on that day, if you notice, it says here that all will confess and all, will be, and all will declare that he is Lord. But sadly, 
not everyone will be saved. For some, it will be too late. And if, if there are people here this morning who have heard this and thought, no, that, and, 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 want, and, and know that they um, have not declared Jesus their Lord, don't leave it. It's not too late. It's not too late today to humble yourself and come before Jesus. Let's let Jesus' lordship and his return spur us on to live lives worthy of Jesus. Do well, be successful, let, let our, let's use our talents and our gifts, but let our ambition be Jesus-focused. In all we do, let's take Jesus' example, act in humility, in love, in unity, in self-sacrifice, so that the church may be a light to the needy world, a place where Jesus' way of living is demonstrated. Thank you for listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. Please feel free to make a copy of this content, but please do not edit the content in any way.